blessed to have the sermon today by Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, What is Truth? Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. To begin this message today, as you can see, the title by message is a question. What is truth? In 2023, that's kind of a loaded question, right? Because there's all different kinds of people or ideas when it comes to this concept of what is truth. To start out with today, and to just let you know, the inspiration for the title of this message actually comes from a short scene in Jesus' trial before one of the most powerful individuals in the region of Judea. So let's go to John, the 18th chapter, and I just want to read this scene, this story, and talk a little bit about this individual and about the question that he asked. It says, in John 18, verse 33, it says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? And when he had finished, and when he had said this, he went out again, again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. What a loaded question that Pilate asked Jesus Christ right before Jesus was to be crucified for the sins of the world. Just to give us a little background information about who this individual was, as I already mentioned, Pilate was a very powerful individual in the region of Judea. He was known as the governor over the region, and he was put there in place somewhere around 26 A.D. So he was about six or seven years into his reign as the governor, uh, or prefect as they sometimes call it, uh, in Judea. And in fact, for many years, there was not a lot of physical evidence for this individual named Pilate. There were some things in writing and things like that. Josephus had mentioned him. But in 1961, there became this discovery known as the Pilate Inscription, where they discovered in Caesarea 
this inscription about Pilate, about this individual that he literally was a Roman official in Judea. So as an official Roman uh, governor in this region, he would have full power over people's lives, including the power to certify verdicts, such as those what were put in place by maybe lower powers, such as the Sanhedrin. And so we, we have this scenario that Pilate, he's interacting with Jesus, and Pilate asks him first, are you the king of the Jews? Now that was, you know, one of the blasphemous things that I guess Jesus was accused of, and rightfully so. He was someone who claimed to be the king, and we know he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. But it's interesting that Pilate asked him this question. Because when we look at contextually, we know in this region of the world, there was common to have nationalist ethnic revivals. Basically, ethnic nationalism that would try to rise up, we've talked about the zealots before, and try to overthrow the Roman authority in that region. And if there was one thing that the Romans were the most serious about, was that anyone or anything, any movement that was questioning or threatening their authority, and their rule. But Jesus' response is simple. He says that he has come to bear witness to the truth. Now, when we look at Pilate's response to what Jesus says, it's always, to some extent, perplexed me. Pilate says, what is truth? What did he mean by asking that question? There's a few possibilities. Number one, he could have been genuine in his question. He really was curious, possibly, what Jesus meant by this concept of truth. Maybe in his subjective age, he wanted to understand exactly what was Jesus referring to when he said truth. Whose truth? The second way that he might have responded was, what is truth? Like, yeah, of course. You're just another crazy Jewish man like all the other ones that believe in all these weird things. And he might have been a little annoyed, but what we do know is that he did not seem to be threatened by Jesus because he says this man has done no crime. Let him go, essentially. One of the things that we do know is that regardless of how the mood, the way in which Pilate asked this question, it's a question that mankind has asked for centuries and had a variety of different answers. In my opinion, and you may agree with me, in our day and age, there is an attack on this concept of truth. In fact, I believe that there are some people that don't even believe that such a thing exists. I was curious about this question. In our English language, if you were to go to a dictionary, I went to dictionary.com, just real quick and simple, and I looked up what is the definition in our English language for truth. And I, come at, I found three different definitions. Number one, not very helpful at all. The quality or state of being true. Pretty vague. It's kind of like circular argumentation there. Secondly, that which is true in accordance with fact or reality. There we go. That's more along the line of what I think about when I think of the, the concept of truth. An absolute uh, construct. That's rooted in reality, it's rooted in fact. The third one, though, troubled me a little bit. A fact or belief that is accepted as true. 
And I think that, unfortunately, when we live in the society that we live in, we see more and more people kind of ascribe to this way of thinking when it comes to truth. Today, we live in a world where truth is measured, to some extent, by how many people you can get to buy into that concept or that idea. In fact, there are some people that don't believe that there's anything such as absolute truth, but rather truth is subjective, is created as a social construct that we have, you know, cultures and societies basically determine. And unfortunately, if you subscribe to that belief in what truth is, then whatever you believe is never absolute. If you do not have something behind that truth that is absolute, then all things that you believe, all ideas, all concepts are just subjective. They're just subjective. And of course, we can see this to some extent in the society that we live in today, whether it be in politics and business, just different societal issues, and in morals today, which people reject as being anything other than just subjective constructs that societies and cultures have determined what is right and what is wrong. When you get down to it, the idea or the concepts of right and wrong are subjective ideas with this belief system. So the question that we have to ask not only is what is truth, in fact, I'm going to just tell you right now, that answer is very simple. We all know it's simple. We know where truth comes from. We're going to look at that. But we have to ask the question, another question, how did humanity get so off track? That today in this day and age that sometimes we're confused about what basic things are, basic realities, that there's debates about basic realities. I think that the answer can actually be found and something that Paul wrote in Romans, the first chapter. Let's go to Romans 1. I think that Paul kind of gives this overview of how humans have suppressed the message of truth that emanates from God and has exchanged it for a lie. And Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we see that Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness 
and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And I think that Paul is pointing to, obviously, because the language, if we go to Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, let's go there real quick, we see that this is where he's getting his language. The children of Israel, they're, they're getting ready to go into the promised land, and there's this warning, and we've already seen in the story of Israel, even before Deuteronomy 4, that Israel had already slid back into idolatry. And in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 4, we see, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And so as the story of Israel unfolds, unfortunately, we see that they don't take heed to this warning, but they fall into what so much of humanity had done since the fall of man. And that is worship the creation rather than the creator. We would see later on that because of this, ultimately, it would be the downfall of both the, 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 the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south as God allowed the captivity to take place of the Assyrians and, of course, the Babylonians. Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. When we see the scriptures, we see these warnings about falling into idolatry. And all of it is because it is false meaning that they are believing in things that are not actually reality. They're believing in a lie. They're believing in something that's not true because they are trying to ascribe power to things that really do not have power. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. We see so many warnings about idolatry, but then we also see these mockings. We can go to the story of Elijah, for example. When they're mocking the idea of idolatry, and the idea of false gods. Verse 18 of Habakkuk chapter 2 says, What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molden image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Mute idols that do nothing. We, we see other parts of scripture that talk about them being vain idols. That word meaning useless no power at all to do anything. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to wood, Awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. It's highlighting the foolishness of what humans have done. Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8, read another one. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes that they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. For they have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. So there's this contrast to the idols that are vain, that are useless, 
to the living God. And over and over in scriptures, we see God point to Israel and remind them, remember the works that I did. Remember the miracles I did in bringing you out of the land of Egypt. But we know that despite these warnings and these heeds, they ultimately were not taken. Later on in the New Testament, for example, when we go to 1 Thessalonians, we're not going to get there. One of the things that Paul does is he, he, he's in prayer, essentially in his prologue to, to 1 Thessalonians, thanking God that the Thessalonians had turned from idols to the living God, to the Christ of the universe. We have to ask the question, can we do this today in our day and age? I grew up never having an idol in the sense of what we think of physically. I don't mean that. I'm saying you're probably all the same. We live in a modern age. We live in an age where we don't have idolatry, maybe in the same way that the Bible has. We probably have never had a carved image or anything like that where we bowed down to and prayed. But the question is, is that all idolatry is? Of course it's not. At the end of the day, idolatry is anything that we worship, whether explicitly or implicitly. Anything that we serve. And I can tell you this, I've had many different gods in my life I've had many different things that I've put before God as a human being, as a fallen, sinful human being. There's been many things in my life. As I look at my 38, almost 39 years on this earth, there's times that I have completely fallen short and I've allowed other gods to take hold of my life. Not the same gods that we see in Scripture, maybe. Maybe it's not Moloch. Maybe it's not Baal. But the spirit of it is the same, and that is I've allowed my own desires. I've allowed my own, as Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 19, my own belly be my God, my own desires, my own lusts, my own ambitions and things like that. And maybe you have, as you contemplate your life, have been in the same situation. We today, in this day and age, can erect Images, vain images as gods. And in my opinion, oftentimes, those images, those false gods that we erect in our hearts, in our minds, is the God of self. Is the God of self. In preparing this message, I was interested, you know, in just looking at different ways that people define truth, of course, just in the world, but I... I looked at a definition from an individual by the name of John MacArthur. You may have heard of him before. He has a study Bible. He's the president of uh, the Master Seminary and also like the, the, he has a radio show and a church out in California. But he wrote a book called The Truth Warrior, I think back in like 2008 or something like that. And he comes up with a definition, and I'm going to just say it's not from the Bible, it's not scripture, but I do think it's to some extent pretty faithful to what the scriptures say truth is. This is how he defines it. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Even more to the point, truth is the self-expression is self of God. 
in that definition, there's nothing that I can oppose. It's consistent with what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us all knowledge is from God. But the foundation of knowledge is from God. When we read the Old Testament, we know that God is called the God of truth. I'm not going to go there, but you go to Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, verse 4, Isaiah 65, verse 16, among many others, a couple that I just listed. And then we come to the New Testament. And we, you know, we use this word truth, and we see this word truth all the time throughout the New Testament. But sometimes we have to maybe step back and understand exactly the way the word truth is being described. We have to maybe think about how people thought back in this day and age. We know that in the New Testament, just very simply, Jesus is known as the way, the truth, and the life. And the gospel message itself is the truth. Now, we live in America in 2023. And although we could sit here and have discussions about how Christian of a country America is, we do know we live in a time where most people in this country have probably heard of Jesus, the idea of him dying for our sins. Even if it's not a complete picture of the gospel message, they've, they've maybe been exposed to it. Not everyone, because that's true. There's people that have not been. But imagine you're in the first century, and you're traveling around to Asia Minor and all these different places, and this news of this individual that God has sanctified, that God has uh, ordained and, and anointed as the Savior of the world. That all truth, all power is going through this individual. And that there is this story about this person, about how he came and how he lived and how he taught, and the realities of the gospel message, and that is exactly revealing who we truly are in the eyes of God. Who we truly are in the eyes of a righteous and holy God. And we read, I'm going to go just read the, the passage here. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. It says this, it says, In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. The word of truth, what was that? It was the gospel. That's what we read here. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the gospel message is truth. And so that's what that is. They're going around, they're preaching this gospel that is all-encompassing. That gospel message is about this individual named Jesus, who is the Son of God, but also a part of that is the reality of who we are before God, naked and bare, without Jesus. Sinners that are uh, deserving of the wrath of God. And Jesus lives this sinless life. He's crucified. And not only that, he's raised from the dead, thus vindicating him as the rightful seed of Abraham that takes away the the sins of the world. And that through this individual, despite this reality, which is the truth of who we are and what we've done, that God, through this individual, has created a path to be reconciled back to the Father, back to God. That's what the gospel message is all about. 
And of course, it doesn't stop there. To be redeemed, justified, reconciliation, and have a place in the soon coming kingdom that will be on this earth when Jesus returns. And so he's presenting them with this idea, the process of conversion. And all of us had a different story in our process. You know, again, uh, you know, I'm, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, I grew up in the church. But I wasn't committed. I had heard the gospel message, but I didn't commit to it. I remember being young, and in my mind, I may have said this before, is that, you, you know, you're young and silly and dumb, and your frontal lobe isn't quite developed, and you always think, like, well, I got plenty of time later on to kind of get right with God, right? Okay, well, you know, that's sometimes how the young people think. You know, they think that maybe they want to go have their fun, and then later they'll, like, straighten up and start following after God. Unfortunately, though, it would, it, there was this emptiness that I felt, and maybe you can relate to that. Maybe in your walk, maybe you were living a life of greed, all of us, of course, were. Excess, steeped in idolatry of our own desires. We were the gods of ourselves. But maybe there was this, this, this calling, this emptiness that we felt as God started to work with us and to, to reveal his son to us. What's interesting about this gospel truth and going back to this idea of these false gods that for so long humanity has went after and a lot of it in today's age is the false god of, of, you know, the power of man. It's real. The gospel message is real. It's rooted in the God of the universe who created all things. But it's not just words. It's backed up with action. It's backed up with a testimony of what that God of the universe did in creating this universe performing miracles through a people known as Israel, redeeming them from Egypt, and then eventually through that line, through those individuals, all the way, you know, going back from Abraham, there was this individual born that lived a sinless life that literally died and literally rose from the dead. It's not just a fanciful story. It's rooted in... In reality, it really happened. And that's what the gospel message is all about. That's why it was so important whenever the disciples, now turned apostles, in the early pages of Acts, before Pentecost, we see them replacing Judas. And how it was important for them to have someone replace Judas to go out and testify of all the things they saw Jesus do and of his death and his resurrection. It's rooted in reality. It's rooted in an actual event. But with that, this truth, it should bear fruits in our life. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to go start in verse 3. It says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world, 
and in bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. I just want us to think about that. Because when we are, you know, in Christ, when we become a part of this life, it's not just, you know, reality in terms of like we're, we're saved and, you know, we're, we, we're destined for this kingdom. There should be fruit that comes from this decision. If we have devoted our life and have been baptized in Christ and come up in new life, then there should be fruit from that. There should be some sort of transformation that has taken place. And I think that most of us would agree that maybe we had different ideas of what we wanted in life and things like that. I remember, and again, this isn't about me at all, but I do remember that there were certain things that I had aspirations for, and through the process of conversion, it didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter anymore. It doesn't mean that I gave up all my hobbies and things like that. Like I didn't, you know, you're probably the same way. But there's things that were opposed to God and the will of God and the character of God. That through that transformation process, that conversion, that God began transforming us into the image of his son. And allowing us to bear fruit, him bearing fruit through us. I'm always reminded of this idea. We're not going to go there for the sake of time. But Matthew the 19th chapter verse 16 through 26 is that parable of the rich ruler, the rich young man. And he wanted to know, like, how, what can I do to inherit eternal life, to, to, to be in the kingdom? And of course, there's this discussion about all the different commandments and things like that. At the very end, he says, Jesus says, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And this man was sorrowful. Although he kept all the commandments, giving up those possessions that he clung to was so difficult. And at the very end of that story, Jesus talks about how hard it is for a rich man. Now, I think that when we look at that in an application point of view, we can think of our own selves, even if we're not rich, the things that we had to give up, the things that we clung to, whether it be possessions, whether it be ideas, whether it be mindsets and things like that, we had to give up in order to follow Jesus. And really, what's interesting is, in the end of that story, it says, with man, there's things that are impossible. And I'm paraphrasing, but with God, nothing is impossible. And so what I mean by that is, through the conversion process, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we struggle with, there's a way through that change that happens within us, that transformation, to be able to overcome. And it's not us overcoming, but it's the Spirit of God that's strengthening us and helping us overcome. A part of this idea I'm also reminded of the apostles. And the apostles are these individuals that they saw Jesus and they, they, they see him get you know, arrested and they're scared and they run off and they basically abandon Jesus as we know the story goes. But then we turn to Acts and we see the Spirit come and we see this transformation, we see this real fruit take place. It changes the way they live. It changes their nature. It changes who they are. The Apostle Paul, a Pharisee, 
and not just a, you know, a, a regular run-of-the-mill Pharisee, but seems to be pretty expert, a student of a very high-ranking Pharisee, was called by God and converted. And Paul says, basically, I'll count it all nothing for the truth of Christ. Let's go to John 1 real quick. We've heard this before many times. It's known as the prologue of John, the very introduction. I just want to read this because I think it I think it has some insight of this idea of truth, especially when as it relates to who Jesus is. And as we read the Old Testament and we come into the New Testament, John has this uh, wonderful introduction about who Jesus is, very different from the first three Gospels. And John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing, made, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And when you skip down to verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the things I want to point out here that I think is very interesting is that first part, those first few verses, uh, which is really in verse 5, is it says that the darkness was not able to comprehend the light. I think that John is making an emphatic statement that all truth emanates through this individual now, known as Jesus Christ, that the Father is now speaking through this individual that we know as, as Jesus Christ. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that in the Old Testament, what's the main way that God would come and speak to the nation of Israel? Through prophets. And so when we turn to Hebrews chapter 1, we read, you know, in various times, and I'm paraphrasing, you can go there, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, I believe. In various times, God spoke through the prophets in all different ways. But now, in this time, now God is speaking through his Son in whom the worlds were made. There's this transference that now has come the time that truth, all truth comes from God. And God's will and his truth and character is ultimately revealed, not through a prophet anymore, but through his son, Jesus Christ. Through his son, Jesus Christ. In order for us to see the truth, we must come out of that darkness and enter into the light of Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way. And on this, we live in 2023, the way that God speaks to us, and I'm not wanting to limit God, but one of the primary ways is through this, through his word. And this word is the scriptures, but it's also the testimony, the written testimony of these events that took place. Yes, the Bible does have commandments. The Bible does have laws. 
The Bible has those things, and we know that. But more than anything, what the Bible is, is a revelation of God's acts in human history and what he's done that testifies and vindicates that he is who he says he is and that he accomplishes what he says he's going to accomplish and that he fulfills what he says that he's going to fulfill. Let's go to 2 Timothy verse, chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible is called the word of truth. It says in verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightfully, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of truth, a reference to his scriptures. These testimonies have been written down and have been passed down through the ages. And as Christians, we are, as the scripture says, to be diligent. We know what truth is. Truth comes from God and only God and through his son Jesus Christ, the gospel message. But we have a responsibility to that truth. And one of the responsibilities in terms of how we receive the truth, which is the word of God, is to, with diligence, and that word in the Greek means to give extra devoted attention or effort, to make sure we impart God's truth correctly. Now, when you read the word rightfully dividing, I, I'm kind of going off memory here, but this word is a Greek word that's, um, well, two things. I, the, the first part of it is ortho, meaning essentially kind of going back to like cutting things. Like we talk about like orthopedic surgeons, right? They, you know, they, they, they have to be very precise in what they do. But going off memory, I do remember in, in doing a study one time that Paul uses this. We know that one of his occupations, at least on the side, other than, you know, going and proclaiming the gospel, was that he was a tent maker. You know, that was one of the trades that he had learned to be able to make money and be able to, you know, live off his own, you know, pull his own weight, so to speak. And so in tent making... You make cuts to fabric and things like that. And if you don't cut correctly and precisely, the, you know, the, the size that you need, the diameters, it won't fit together appropriately. And so he's kind of using that term and referring to us, essentially, cut the word correctly, interpret it correctly. Now, unfortunately, and we've seen this in so many different denominations over vast years of church history, of people distorting and not rightfully dividing the word of truth. But we have a responsibility to divide the word of truth in our interpretations, just as a tent maker would, of course, have to be precise when it comes to cutting fabric for making a tent. And so just know that we have a responsibility to this word, especially when it comes to us interpreting it. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. Let's turn there real quick. The truth is said to have set us free. It says, verse 31, we've read this before. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that's true on many different levels. One of the functions of God's truth is liberty. 
is to set us free. Of course, a part of that is the gospel message and the message of us needing Christ as a Savior so that we're not enslaved to sin any longer. But also, the truth. When we have the truth, we know it's a solid, absolute, fixed thing. That is God. It doesn't change. And it helps us not to be enslaved to this world, the philosophies of this world, the different ways, the different corruptions. Now, that doesn't mean that once we are converted, it's easy just to ignore the world and not be swept away. We know that the scriptures talk about the old man wanting to creep back up in our life and things like that. But we know that Jesus is telling us that only through him, abiding in him, can we have that absolute truth in our life that sets us free from all the different things in this world. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Just a few more scriptures. This is more of a topical message, which is typically not my style. The church is meant to protect the truth. That is, Christ's body. Individuals living in the body of Christ all over the world, in that global organism, that living body of Jesus Christ, verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, actually verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, of course, the church itself is established by Jesus Christ. It's his body. It's not ours. It's not, you know, yes, God does establish order and some authority in the church and things like that. But Jesus is the head. It's not Jesus, then a man, and then everybody else. It's Jesus and then everybody else. And through his will and him and the Father's will, they appoint people to be servants, all of us to be servants, but in different positions. They equip us with different gifts, the gift of speaking, the gift of being you know, an overseer and things like that. Not to rule over people, not to be the, the ones that are the, you know, bearers of all the interpretive correct things that the scriptures say. We are all subject to God to prove all things as individuals. But we do have a responsibility in the church where God, you know, Christ's body truly is, uh, to be faithful stewards of that truth, of this truth that God has revealed to us, to protect it, to allow it to nourish us, to live by it, and to uphold it. And it's not easy, always. Especially, you know, when we live this life, in this world, still in this fleshly body, where we have carnality still that we have to fight against, and things like that. So this, in conclusion, I just want to point out a few things, kind of what we've went over. God is the source of all truth. It's real simple. It's real simple. And I wanted to create this sermon in simplicity. He is the source of all truth, and only through his son Jesus can we understand the truth. And we have a responsibility to act upon that truth allowing it to nourish us, to protect it, to uphold it, and to live by it. The truth, it's meant to change our lives. 
It's meant to transform us. We should have evidence of fruit, evidence of transformation in our lives. That's the thing about truth. That's the thing about when we, you know, you want to judge whether or not something's of God or something is of God or something like that. Jesus told us that we could judge things by someone's fruit, you know, whether they're following after God or not. We can apply that to our own lives. Am I bearing fruit like I am meant to bear? Am I, as the Bible study kind of alluded to, am I being salt and light to the earth? Am I being an accurate representation of Jesus Christ on this earth? Am I helping, working to help prevent the rapidly decaying of this world? Those are questions that we can ask. In conclusion, I, I encourage all of us to say the prayer of Jesus that Jesus said on that last night, right before he was betrayed and, 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 and arrested. He said in John chapter 17, verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification means be set apart. I encourage all of us to pray to God, to help, for God to help us be sanctified, for the, the truth of his gospel, the truth of his word to sanctify us in our inner being as he continually transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ.